Hi and welcome to Emerging Markets Today. My name is Ana Paula Picasso and this episode is about one of the best tech innovation examples in emerging markets I've come across in the last few years. We are going to talk about a project in Uganda that is reaching underserved areas where testing for malaria can be challenging and having the diagnosis early can be a matter of life or death. So I invited not one, but three guests to talk about the project. In the first part of the episode, I spoke to Professor John Cooper and Julianne Rebeau from the Bioengineering School at the University of Glasgow. We talked about how the project came about. Also, we talked about how smartphones are used as a power source providing electricity to process the test. And in the second part, I spoke to Lito Michaela, a lecturer at the University of Glasgow in the School of Computing Science focused on Internet of Things. We talked about how they chose the blockchain technology to store and share the data of the malaria test results. Even if you're not too familiar with the blockchain technology, you should definitely stick around for the second part of the episode. I'll give you a quick explanation. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and don't forget to check out today and follow this podcast in your favorite podcast platform. Hi everyone, welcome to Emerging Markets Today. We have a very special episode today. I have two guests and we're going to talk about smartphones, malaria and malaria testing. So it's going to be very diverse. Um, we have some topics. If you guys want to introduce yourselves, I have here Dr. Julien Rebaud. Hi, Julien. Hi, Anna. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm a lecturer in the University of Glasgow in, in biomedical engineering. Um, and we, we have worked in, in developing new diagnostic tests for uh, malaria in, in Africa. Um, for, for a few years now, and, and I work with um, Professor John Cooper. Excellent, excellent. Welcome. And Professor John Cooper, could you introduce yourself? Hi, Anna. It's a great pleasure to take part in this podcast. Uh, yes, my name is John Cooper. I'm at uh, the University of Glasgow. I'm a professor of biomedical engineering. And as Julian said, we've been working in Uganda in particular, but also in Rwanda, Tanzania, and Malawi in infectious disease diagnostics across a range of diseases, but there has been a real focus on malaria, mm-hmm. uh, partly because of its importance at the moment. Yes, and that's the reason I invited you guys. I came across your article on the conversation called How We Use Smartphones to Test for Malaria lessons from Uganda. So it kind of blew my mind. I also want to give a quick shout out from for the guys from The Conversation. They have a very good podcast as well called The Conversation Weekly. So you guys can go and check it out. And so, yeah, so I was reading through the article and some of the things just blew my mind how you, you know, about your project. But first I want to talk a little bit about malaria because for me I'm from Brazil originally 
And I was under the impression that malaria, and especially people dying from malaria, was a thing of the past. But it doesn't seem to be the case anymore. I, I mean, malaria is obviously a disease that's prevalent through uh, a, a greater part of the southern hemisphere, um, and particularly prevalent in in uh, sub-Saharan Africa. So, so the countries that uh, lie um, at or below the equator in Africa. And for many years, actually, there have been uh, technological and uh, social science interventions which have tried to reduce the prevalence of malaria. And most notable, I suppose, is the insecticide-coated bed netting programs and in fact, up until about uh, about six or seven years ago, mal- malaria was decreasing pretty well globally. And there has been a change. Uh, and that was first noted, I think, in about 2018 with an upturn in the rates of um, or the prevalence of malaria in um, 13 countries. And this has continued. And, and the, there are a number of reasons for it, actually, and they um, are associated with the availability of diagnostics as one, one aspect, right. um, and, and also some quite surprising uh, data, which is coming out about comorbidities, so sort of uh, the interaction between different diseases. And, for example, as we've seen changes in lifestyle, um, and de- demographics as well with people getting older and actually more people uh, becoming prone to type 2 diabetes. So there's been an increase in the amount of uh, uh, malaria and there's a, a quite an interesting story between, in this link between diabetes okay. and malaria, particularly in Africa. But of course, we're focused mainly on the diagnostics and ways in which we can uh, bring simple tests into uh, rural or underserved communities within uh, within uh, rural commun- uh, villages and, and the like. Yeah. So how, for me, I, well, I don't know anything about malaria testing. So how would be, let's say, the normal malaria test? And what are the challenges in, let's say, rural areas of Africa or parts of the world, they don't have a good infrastructure, let's say, electricity. So, Julian, do you want to take that or shall I carry on? Um, no, I, 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 I can take that. So in terms of the, the, the difficulties, I mean, John has highlighted very well um, the issues or the impact that, that malaria has in uh, what we call underserved communities. And the reason why they are underserved is is really linked with the point that you've just made about the lack of infrastructure. The, the diagnostics of malaria can take many forms. Um, the, the one that's mostly used is very commonly known now as a rapid diagnostic test. Um, many, many of the listeners will have tried this for COVID-19, but it's also based on the same technology as the pregnancy test where uh, a strip of paper is is used to um, isolate the markers that come from um, a blood sample, for example, or in the case of a 
um, a COVID test to swab. And so for malaria, it's a, it's a blood sample. Uh, and these biomarkers are detected um, just optically and, and make this very characteristic line that you see um, in, in rapid tests. The, the, so that's one aspect, and that's very well deployed in low resource settings because it is cheap. Um, however, uh, we've noticed, and the WHO um, has, has published very interesting reports and, and challenging reports on that aspect, um, these devices have um, dipped in performance over the years. And um, it is believed, and, and there are studies that account for that um, in, in the recent years, um, it is believed that this is linked to the parasite adapting to the pressure of diagnostics. And so the markers that these tests are using uh, no longer work. The, the parasites no longer have these markers in them. And so we can't detect them, and then we can't detect malaria in the patient. And so the other side of testing is uh, much more um, sensitive, performant, uh, performing well, and, um, and accurate. And it's, it's again, a, 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 a word that listeners will be familiar with. It's the PCR test. Uh, and and many, many of us have done PCR tests for COVID recently, and we'll know that this is requiring quite a lot of infrastructure. And, and most of the time, the samples have to be sent off uh, and we have to wait for the results to come back. It is exactly the same for malaria. Uh, and that means that in um, communities, rural communities or communities where uh, access is difficult and infrastructure is challenging, um, these tests cannot be run, which means that we are left with uh, a, a gap where the rapid diagnostic tests, which can be used, do not work anymore. And the tests that do work cannot be used. And, and that's where um, we tried to, to be and fill that gap, actually. And I'm guessing as, as quick as you can test and diagnose malaria, the chance of someone dying from it is less. Yeah, of course. And, and actually, you know, the areas where, where it's particularly important is amongst um, pregnant women and young children. I see. And, and, uh, and malaria can be a, a, a really uh, big problem in, in these circumstances. It uh, can easily be a fatal disease. And so uh, this challenge of being able to do the same kind of very sensitive testing that we associate with the PCR test, but being able to translate that onto a paper diagnostic test like the lateral flow test um, was really the, the starting point of what we set out to do. Mm -hmm. How we could take a drop of blood and then using the, the properties of the paper of how it wicks the reagents and the fluids along, um, how that drop of blood can be processed and how we can perform a, a DNA-based test which is extremely sensitive, but which can be read very easily, can be visualized very easily. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, giving that characteristic strip that you see either in a COVID test or a, a pregnancy test showing when someone is positive or negative. Easy to interpret and, and easy to act upon. And that was 
the key innovation actually in in our work. Yeah, and that actually that brings me to my next question: and when and how did uh, the origami testing come about? And I really like the name origami. Could you just explain a little bit why do you guys call this test origami testing? We we shall do a one one to one, and I, I can I can answer this question. Um, the idea of origami we, we're we're familiar with uh, the the paper figures that people can make with folding paper. Yes, uh, exactly. Very yeah. elaborate shapes, and and that that is origami and so uh, in our hands origami is much less um, artistic um, but it's still mm-hmm. about folding paper and uh, the idea of folding paper in in the context of an assay or a, or a diagnostic test um, is to answer John's point um, or challenge about sample preparation uh, in order to enable the PCR test which is highly complex one needs to um, extract the, the biomarkers from the sample to get rid of all the, the contaminants, so to speak, of the reactions that are present in a normal sample of blood. Uh, and, and in order to do that, uh, usually people use a very well, very well catered lab with pipettes and centrifuges, etc., uh, which we don't have in in rural settings in, in Uganda, for example. Uh, and so the folding is this idea that if you have paper that is wet on one side and dry on another side, um, mm-hmm. if you put them together, then the the content of the liquid is going to be transferred um, and from one side of, of, of the paper to another. Now, imagine that if on the two sides you've got different reagents, you're able to transfer the, the content of the paper uh, onto different reaction sites, so to speak. And so you're able to use the paper as a valve by simply folding it. And and this mm-hmm. is wicking in exactly the same way as um, you would wipe uh, a coffee stain on a table when you when you you know you drop your coffee cup. Um, the, the the coffee wets the paper and so we're we're able to carry the liquid through the paper in a very well controlled fashion by um, by organizing it and manufacturing it in a way that parts of it is hydrophilic and so it, it, it likes water and the water can flow uh, in, as, as wicking and parts of it is hydrophobic and the water um, does not flow. And so by doing that, we're able to create these networks of channels and wells and um, areas where reagents are stored to run the reaction in a very precise and determined um, order. Right? So it's, it's very similar to uh, a, a cooking recipe um, you need to be able to perform reactions in a specific order at a specific time. And by treating the paper in this way and folding it, we're able to do that in a very simple and low-cost fashion. Yeah, and then here in the article it says is um, you guys just use a common household printer to print patterns made from water-resistant wax. So it's a very um, it's something that it doesn't require high... Uh, like a special machine, it can be done in a um, in a normal printer. Indeed, um, this is this is one advantage for research and for decentralization of of manufacturing. It is unlikely to be the solution to uh, a screening program or a wide testing in in large areas, um, because the number of tests that that would need to be done 
um, would drive the printer mad and, and it would be very difficult to do. But on a on a, a point by point focused intervention, if you know if something someone um, has fever and wants to, to, to check that, um, that is possible. It is possible to manufacture the test um, I see. On, on the same site. But for the wider campaigns, um, these devices are still very interesting because you can deliver the tests, as you said, timely. Um, so detecting malaria very early and so acting on it very early. And so we, we are partnering with uh, the Ministry of Health in, in Uganda um, and in particular, um, the Ugandan um, in Institute for Industrial Research. Yeah, um, yeah. Which... And uh, why why did you guys choose Uganda? How did they how was how was the connection made? I will say that um, in in these situations there are always multiple factors that influence right. these choices. They're not choices really. They're they're just serendipity. Um, and, and okay, so even but... better. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we were largely working in East East Africa and we had a number of related projects and an opportunity actually arose through a colleague of ours who, who was working in a in a different infectious disease, actually, Dr. Poppy Lamberton, who was working on schistosomiasis, which is a, a again a, a, a parasitic disease. Um, and and uh, the opportunity arose for us to travel to Uganda with her and uh, to a large extent she introduced us to to some of the um, key contacts that we have since work, worked with in in the Ugandan Ministry of Health so uh, a big shout out for her actually it's yes. very very uh, uh, as Julian says a, a lot of uh, luck involved in in this but this is often how research happens actually I see I see yeah sometimes serendipity is better than actually choosing. It's how I, I always find very interesting how these stories come about. And um, also going back a little bit back to the, the testing itself, uh, I want to talk about smartphones. So another part of the article I read about, um, it was a mobile phone-based digital support. So it's very interesting how you guys explain that on the article. I'm just going to read out a little bit for the people that haven't read it. The smartphone is paired with a 3D printed stand containing a simple, a simple heating element. The phone provides the battery power to run the DNA-based assay. The app controls the temperature of the origami test. For me, this was the best part. Who came up, who came up with this idea? Was this something you guys seen before and applied to that or something that you came out to yourselves? So uh, the, the idea of the smartphone is, is I mean, we, we have to be um, uh, humble on this, uh, using smartphones <laughs> in, in, in diagnostics or um, in, in, um, in, in, you know, in, in rural areas is not something new. And actually in Uganda, um, uh, smartphones are okay. lots and lots of people have smartphones. But um, where... There was a little bit of, um, let's say, inventivity. Is the fact that the the reaction that we use, so the the, the kind of chemistry for for the test, requires heat, um, and um, usually that heat is given out by um, a, a bath or a heat block, um, something that plugs into the mains, uh, and and in these villages and settings, 
there, there is no um, really mains electricity. And so mm -hmm. we had to come up with a, a better way of doing this. Um, and we, we explored a lot of different ways. And actually, there, there are a few um, that, that can be possible. For example, using a, a stove um, with, with hot water works very well. Um, it's just a, a little bit more difficult to control. And so we thought that actually the phone is a source of energy. It's got a battery and that battery can, can power a system. And so we, we then went down this road of using the phone as a power source, not, not really to use it as, a, as an intelligent um, system, but simply as a power source um, and, and a control system for, for the temperature. And that worked very well. But um, when we go in, in, in Uganda to do these studies, um, it, it's always, as John has, has mentioned, in partnership with um, researchers over there and, and, and um, support staff from the Ministry of Health as well. Uh, and um, eventually, we would like these assays and these tests to be used by um, the stakeholders in Uganda. And, and they, they, they have to be able to use them without a, a, a PhD. Uh, and so when, when we were first looking at this, the test, although it is easy to interpret, actually has multiplexed outputs. Uh, and in order to say what's happening in the patient or what to do with the patient after what, what treatment to, to recommend, um, the decision can become quite complex. And so now we have the phone for heating and we, we definitely thought, well, actually, the phone is also an intelligent system and it could be used to help uh, in terms of the interpretation of the results of the test. So it could it could help to run the test and control the test, but it could also help. Um, to, to support the decision that someone has to make in terms of treatment. Uh, and, and that started a, a, a lot of work in artificial intelligence, uh, in analyzing images um, completely automatically to provide that decision support um, from, from the cloud as well as a, um, an edge computing system in, in the phone itself. I know you mentioned that you want this technology, this technology be used by a wider uh, number of people. Um, so what are the plans for the future with this project? Do you guys want to stay in Uganda? Is there any plans to go to other countries or other, even other regions within Uganda? Well, of course, we all hope that we'll be able to travel again soon. And, uh, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, plan, plans for doing research in the future will be inevitably dependent upon some of those restrictions but 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 you know notwithstanding that um you know in terms of its broad applicability uh, as julian has said the mobile phone is a fantastic platform particularly in southern africa and in, in africa generally there's a great uptake of mobile phone that's used for um mobile banking and for yes, communication systems exactly partly because you know, many of these countries don't have the fixed line infrastructures that um, uh, are elsewhere. So we're seeing this huge uptake in the number of people with mobile phones and using smartphones. The mobile phone itself has got um, a little microprocessor in it, so it can do a, has a degree of intelligence. There's a there's a um, a geo um, spatial aspect to this where you can actually record where the infections are and perhaps be able to to plan the treatment more effectively by linking that to to uh, central databases 
So uh, there's a whole range of reasons why the mobile phone is is uh, an excellent platform uh, for, for this. And of course, the communications of the mobile phone and being able to um, inform a decision support tool of the type that Julian has mentioned, uh, may be based up in the cloud and, and, and using, as we did, blockchain, which many of your listeners will know is a secure uh, encrypted system that uh, an, enables information to be moved in a trusted fashion. And it's most commonly associated, of course, with cryptocurrencies, exactly. but, yeah. uh, but in this case, uh, used uh, by us for making sure not only are the patient's details kept securely, but also that um, only people who have the key to be able to access that information can access it, that information. And the ownership of patient information, I think, is an important area for the future. And one I'm sure that your listeners will be aware of yeah. um, as, be, as, as being an important area of um technology for all of us. Yeah, exactly. I think in, in this case, traceability and security are two main things that the blockchain technology can offer. Do, do, you, do you know, I mean, what is really interesting about this project is in a way that um, it, it involves people who come within our team from a whole range of different disciplines, from the people in the molecular biology side who devised the uh, DNA testing, um, the people who are involved, for example, in 3D printing, who made the interface between the mobile phone and the paper test, uh, people involved in communications technology and ICT, who, who wrote the decision support tools and developed the secure blockchain systems. And then, of course, you know, a big shout out to the teams in, in Uganda in mm -hmm. particular, You know, the, the whole teams of nurses and healthcare professionals, uh, drivers, you know, who took us out to these remote places in, 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 in the country, um, to, to nurses who helped us take the samples, to, to the school um, headmasters who allowed us to go into their schools and, and, and have access to the children. And, of course, the children's parents who... Who gave informed consent to allow us to 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 test their children? So, really, you know, there's this big community of people involved in a project like this, and and you know, myself and Julian are lucky enough to be talking about it here. But uh, really, people at all stages of their careers, from yeah, from um, young PhD students right the way through to um, Uh, uh, clinical, clinical, clinical consultants within um, the Ugandan Ministry of Health. So a great project to be involved in. Yes, and well, all the people on the ground that made it possible to happen. Yeah, and if anyone wants to know more about the project, where can they read about it? Um, I can put your well, a, you, your um, contacts yeah, I mean, there you, 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 on the show description. You mentioned you mentioned the conversation, and they can go to the conversation and see another article on that. Okay. Uh, the, the, the the paper itself was actually published in a, a, a journal called Nature Electronics, and uh, you know if people Google 
nature electronics and malaria tests, they'll probably get a link that will come up and they'll be able to see technical details mm -hmm. of what we did and, and why we did it. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, quite a lot of online presence about this at the moment. So it's an exciting area. Yeah, I'll make sure I'll put the links of your articles on the show notes as well. And um, Julian, any final thoughts? Just want to thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation. Oh, well, welcome. It was a, a fantastic project to talk about because of all the points that John has mentioned about being able to do this, right? It, it really is something. I mean, we, we did talk a little bit about um, the fact that we, we do want this, or we are working very hard um, for this to be used in the field in practice. Uh, and and um, it, it's one of these projects where the, the framework um, that we are using for dissemination is, is completely open. And so all mm -hmm. the John mentioned the fact that the you know the article has all the technical details, but not only do they have the technical details, the, the program that we use for the um, the the support system is publicly available, and people can use that and modify it. Um, and the designs uh, for the devices and and uh, there are movies to help people use the device. Uh, it's all there, and and people can definitely start to try, and and that would be fantastic. Yeah, definitely is yeah so well done guys i think you the work you guys are doing amazing um especially with the smartphone idea and um always amazes me how uh, you know people in developing countries they start having smartphones and everything happens with the smartphones even if they don't have um, the infrastructure the second part of the episode where I spoke to little Michaela, a lecturer at the University of Glasgow in the School of Computing Science focused on the Internet of Things. We talked about how the blockchain technology was used to store and share the data of the malaria test results. If you're not too familiar what blockchain is, here's a quick explanation without getting too technical. And the key here is the decentralization aspect, meaning no one single person or group has control of the data. Blockchains are immutable, which means that the data entered is irreversible. Hope you guys enjoyed the second part, and here is Lito Mikala. Hi, Lito. Hi, Anna. Welcome. Welcome to Emerging Markets today, and I'm here with Lito Mikala. I will let you introduce yourself. Thanks, thanks. Um, I'm Lito Mikala. I'm a lecturer at the University of Glasgow in the School of Computing Science. And um, my research um, is uh, on smart monitoring small devices, which we tend to call Internet of Things these days. Mm -hmm. um, and my focus is particularly on how we use the data they collect. How do we make sure we can trust whatever these devices are recording? Uh, how can we improve privacy protection, security, 
an ethical use of these devices. So my research revolves around those softer topics, if you like. I see. Yeah. That also, um, one of the reasons I invite you here uh, is to talk about blockchain. I just had a conversation with Professor John and, and Julian about how you guys using smartphones to diagnose malaria in Uganda. And the other part that really caught my attention in the article was about the use of blockchain. I have another podcast called Blockchain Beat, so it's a blockchain-focused um, podcast. But uh, even if you're not too familiar with the blockchain technologies, just stick around. We're not getting too technical. So we're just going to talk a little bit about how blockchain is used to share the data of the, the data or the results of those tests. So, Lito, why did you guys choose blockchain? Right, thanks uh, for the question. Basically, uh, the choice was to improve, um, as I was saying before, trust and security. Um, Blockchain offers uh, some really uh, interesting features. Um, Basically, you can uh, securely transfer the data, but also you can go back and check that the data you have now is the same as the data that was initially collected. The immutability of blockchain. That's exactly what it is. And um, at the same time, you can trace who generated this data when um, and trace it all back to the beginning. So, for example, if a malaria test was taken by a specific um, medical professional at a specific location. Um, This can be traced back to the date that this data was first collected. This is very useful in modern healthcare systems because one of the blockers, if you like, in the adoption of this technology is uh, that medical professionals do not trust that the technology has not been hacked, has not been tampered with, Um, and so it offers, um, if you like, a secure data collection and data transfer uh, backbone upon which then you can start building intelligence. Um, So if you can know that your data is trustworthy, you can build intelligence that is also trustworthy as a result. I, I hope I've answered your question. Of course you did, yeah. So I'm kind of uh, not surprised, but um, it's interesting to see that the medical um, or the medical bodies, they still not too familiar with the blockchain t- immutability. of. They are not too familiar with the aspect of immutability or blockchain. And also traceability, because then you can everything can be traced. Yeah, I, I think this is because blockchain has only just in the recent years uh, started to be used in medical applications. It has been traditionally used in other domains, um, financial mostly. Yes. Uh, recently, it, it's been, you know, uh, finding applications in other domains like the medical domain, like the 
power, uh, electronics, uh, so as in use of power kind of domain. Um, so now more people are starting to get used to the idea, um, but you will find that the healthcare systems are slow bodies to adopt change. Um, exactly, so- yeah. People mostly associate block. People mostly associate blockchain with cryptocurrencies, with investments, but the technology can be applied with other in other aspects like yes. health, healthcare, and yeah. So yes. there are still areas of research uh, that need to grow further around blockchain to make sure that we can uh, use it and integrate it into big data type of systems. For example, blockchain is not designed to hold hordes and hordes of data like a medical healthcare system would generate. Um, So there are still active areas of research around how best to integrate it. Um, But our approach was one um, example of how it can be done uh, using the benefits of blockchain transiently when data is being in transfer and then using the benefits of a backbone like uh, a cloud database, for example, to store all of this information more permanently. Mm-hmm. And we're investigating other directions of how to best integrate that with existing systems um, that are used uh, in sub-Saharan African countries. Um, if I'm not getting too technical now... No, um, no, definitely not. Actually, that would bring when. Actually, that would bring to my next next question. How how is it going there? Are you guys seeing the results with um, the use of blockchain, like streamlining and, and communication improvement? Uh, yes, I think there are some beneficial results shown in the in our Nature article as well, um, where you can see that there are no huge delays when data is uh, uploaded mm-hmm. to the network, uh, but also you can see the benefit of delay tolerance. So um, people could be collecting loads and loads of tests locally, uh, but they don't have any internet access while they are doing that. Ross, I and see. Then, and then as they move closer to a location where there is internet access, uh, then all the data is uploaded at once to, to the network and we have recorded how long it takes um, to do that. And we, I definitely need to, to say thanks to, uh, to our very skilled PhD students for doing this um, because uh, it took some, uh, some interesting experimental work to verify that this is the case. Yeah, yeah. And then for this specific case, um, and then Lito, can you talk me through like the chain of events for this project you in Uganda, let's say um, the test for malaria has been done. Uh, let's say there's a positive, um, do you say positive marker okay. for malaria? And then you have to communicate this result to someone. How would that, how would be the chain of events and how, and where blockchain plays a part in this? 
Right. So um, uh, the way that the application is designed, it um, bring it, it processes the information locally on the mobile phone mm-hmm. and provides the result of a positive or a negative marker, whatever it is, directly um, on the spot to the healthcare provider, whoever it is, maybe the medical professional on site or the nurse or whoever is handling the device. And for uh, that to happen, it takes a a few minutes. So um, the patient can be around for that time and wait to get the result immediately. Now, blockchain plays a role after that. When the medical professional sends the test and the result to um, the cloud, which then can be communicated to the bigger healthcare system. And then the interest is in um, finding out uh, things like um, how the uh, disease progresses in a population, right. making, um, forecasting for how best to deal with um, potential um, hot points where they expect the disease to grow faster or how best to plan um for uh things like stock uh you know uh, medication availability this I kind see. of so blockchain plays a role after if you like the diagnosis is done and providing this information to the cloud so bigger analytics can take place but also blockchain plays a role throughout for, as we said, the traceability and immutability of the data itself, um, because previously somebody would have to take a test sample on site, send this sample in a lab somewhere with a paper form, then that test would have to take you know, a few days to be processed, and then the result would have to come back on a, some sort of paper form again, um, so the patient could be notified. So um, if you like, we've taken all this potential for human error out mm-hmm. of the equation. We've taken all this manual processing out of the equation. So um, technically, we've taken a process that takes a few days and um, made it last a few minutes, if you like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And takes away like you said, the potential of human error. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, imagine somebody going around with paper forms, a paper form falls out or a sample is mislabeled or attached exactly. to the paper form. There's this huge potential for human error in the process. Especially in healthcare. <laughs> It'd be very dangerous. The consequences could be very dangerous. Exactly. And um, is a, I know... Um, um, like I said, I'm a really believer in the blockchain technology, and I still think the technology is very underused in other aspects, mm-hmm. um, especially in healthcare as well. But that will change. Hopefully, they will change in the next few years, Lito, don't you think? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, definitely the research is heading in that direction. Uh, there's a few... Um, uh, people in um, different universities looking at the potential of blockchain for healthcare applications. Um, 
our article is one of the kind of pioneers in demonstrating this working in in real field uh, tests. Mm-hmm. But there, there is definitely keen interest from the research community. So hopefully we'll see commercialization efforts spinning out of that. Yeah. And I think the merger markets would be in the front, in the forefront of uh, this application, blockchain healthcare. Yeah, I hope so. Let's hope so too. <laughs> well, Lito, thank you very much. And thanks a lot for your explanation. I hope you guys enjoyed this second part of this episode and thank you lito thank you thanks anna for your invitation bye